through. Oh, hi, Carl. How are you? Good to hear your voice. Yes, I'm pleased <laughs> managed to connect. I'm in South Devon in England, so sometimes the internet connection can be a little bit unreliable. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, let's hope that we can uh, maintain it for the purposes of this podcast. Um, welcome to A Life in Biography. Thank you. For, yes. And for my listeners, I want to say I'm speaking with Andrew Wilson, a master biographer who also writes novels, which isn't fair, but that there you have it. Uh, you do both. So yes. tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself uh, and how you uh, got interested in biography. Yes, I mean, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? And we could talk all day, but I'll, yeah. I'll keep very brief uh, my intro. So I'm the author of, I think, 12 books now. So that is that comprises of five works of biography and seven novels and some of those are biographical novels which we can probably talk about at some point so my first book um, was a biography of Patricia Highsmith the author of The Talented Mr Ripley and Strangers on a Train and I wrote that nearly 20 years ago now amazingly and I started life as a journalist, as a feature writer on national newspapers here in the UK. And I found myself writing longer and longer pieces, which sort of were moving towards the biographical. And I just got this urge to write something very long <laughs> and very biographical. Um, and I came up with the idea of writing about Highsmith. So this was back in 1998, when there was very, very little information, biographical information about Highsmith, apart from the newspaper interviews that she'd given. And as anybody knows anything about Highsmith, will testify she didn't give anything away or very little away in those newspaper interviews or those bro broadcast interviews. So I became increasingly interested in her as a subject. Um, I'm very quite daunted by the idea. So I read some of her novels, got a sense that she was obviously a fascinating um, individual and a brilliant writer. Um, I tracked down her archive um, in Switzerland and nobody had seen this archive. So I took myself off to Bern in Switzerland for a week of preliminary research. And during that time, I realised that there was such a wealth of information. She'd left every diary, every scrap of paper throughout her whole life, pictures, notebooks, the links between her life and her work. So I came back to London and I did a synopsis and it was picked up by a publisher, Bloomsbury. And that's that's how I started. It's um, that's a wonderful biography. That, that's how I first heard of you. Uh, I reviewed your Highsmith biography for The New York Sun and was quite taken with the way you treated the subject, I think, because she was in some ways a kind of slippery personality hard to pin down. And I, I think one gets a sense of that from your book. In other words, you don't, you don't pretend to know more than we can know about her in a sense. I think that's a really good point. And thank you for that review, by the way. It was, it was a great, great 
review. Um, I think that was one of my intentions because she believed in the concept of ambiguity and fluidity in many aspects of her life. I didn't want to label her. I didn't want to define her. I didn't want to box her in. And she was such a chaotic figure in so many ways. And she wrote about the chaos of the darkness of human psychology. So I wanted that to be reflected in the book at the same time as giving the book a structure of a birth to death approach. Because I was conscious this was the first biography of Highsmith, um, I wanted people to have that very definite structure that is quite traditional in terms of biographical structure and form. But I thought it was important for her to have that. But at the same time, within the, the, the birth to death form, I wanted to have some space to breathe and explore and experiment um, and, have, and have as many voices in there. Obviously, she left these intimate diaries which have just been published in um, a condensed form. So I read those 20 years ago, the ones that have just been published um, in their entirety. So something like two million words. I spent a year in the archive in Switzerland just transcribing the material. It took me that long. Um, so I wanted to give her a sense that she was a very chaotic personality who defined herself very much through her work and streamlined herself through her work. So she contained the darkness of her own personality through the written word. And I think as one of, one of her friends told me when I was researching the book, you know, what would she have been like if she hadn't have written? Because, you know, she, she managed to channel all this darkness in her personality into these wonderful, great classic novels. Yes, there's one other thing about her that, that really intrigued me too, and that was she had some sense that someone might try to track her down, so to speak. <laughs> That's part of her darkness. That's yeah. into your book. You know, it, it's almost like a Henry James story where the biographer is mounting the steps and the, the shadow, the ghost of the subject says, don't you dare. Well, I think it was one of my first days at the archive. I came across a little curse that was written in her handwriting in one of her diaries, which basically said, you know, look before, look behind, there's still time to change your mind. <laughs> Perfect in no time assuages, cursed be he that moves these pages, um, which was such a kind of dark touch, which made me laugh um, as well. But I did get a sense of being haunted by her. And as anybody who's read the book will know, on the very last page, I try on Highsmith's dressing gown, which her friend gave me. And I sort of use that as a symbol of what it's like to inhabit another person's life in biographical terms. You know, you are slipping under the skin of somebody and trying to understand the, the world from their perspective. And obviously Highsmith's world was a very dark and skewed one. Yeah. And I think it's hopefully a sort of a bright and optimistic personality to survive to survive the experience <laughs> i had i kind of had fun with your book too in my review because toward the end i was saying you know after all of these questions about identity and so on, i said who is this andrew wilson <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, a shady character uh, <laughs> well biographers are sometimes viewed that way uh for sure
let's talk about one of your other subjects this obviously impinges on mine too, Sylvia Plath. Why did you do that book? I'd always been interested in her. Um, so I read her as a teenager and I became intrigued about her life before she met Ted Hughes. So I'd read a couple of biographies, particularly the Anne Stevenson one, which is obviously very controversial. Um, and I noticed, like, for instance, in that book, I think the first 23 years of, of her life, of past life, were taken up in something like 50 pages. Yeah. One of those subjects that people skirted through and rushed through just to get to this tempestuous marriage, um, you know, the violence and the poetry and the, and the kind of... The, the drama of the Plath-Hughes marriage. So I wanted to see what Plath was like before she met Ted Hughes, what she was like as an individual, as a woman, and as a poet, because I thought she had been defined too much through the prism of Ted Hughes. Um, so I started very much with that angle, and I wanted the book to finish with her marriage to Ted Hughes. So it's really very much a story that hadn't been told in very, very great detail at all. And I managed to track down lots of people who'd never spoken before and come up with a lot of unpublished material. Um, so that came from a hunch, a sort of a biographical instinct, if you like, that there was a story that had to be fleshed out here that hadn't been told before. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm working on a two-volume work, actually, Sylvia Plath, Day by Day. And I went back and and with the kind of care that, that uh, uh, it sort of demands, if you look at the first uh, 20 years of her life, the diaries she kept and so on, uh, one of the things my book is attempting to do is to really slow the reader down you know, to see, to see, you know, the, the life in its, its entirety, the early life in its entirety, and how much there is there to say. Yes. It's really amazing. She started, you know, writing these diaries at, you know, around 11, 12 years old. Mm. And, of course, the diaries that have been published are only the ones that, that begin at Smith, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting, also, the thing that, that jumped out to me is, is in the introduction to Plath's collected poems that came out where Ted Hughes did the introduction and the selection of those poems. He started the selection, um, I think, the year that they met. And anything before then, he considered juvenilia. Yeah. So I thought that was a really telling point, actually. Um, you know, just to look at some of the individuals, the, the intellectual stimulation she'd had, the emotional, psycho psychological impact of other people on, on her life, just to sort of move, to sort of push Hughes back into the shadows a bit, because I think that marriage has had come to define the story too much. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're right. You're right about that. You know, one of the things that, that uh, I'm doing as well is I'm I'm pointing out all this reading that she did. She read a lot of young adult biographies and novels. Uh, you know, by the age of 13, 14, she was reading, reading about medieval Krakow. I mean, uh, there's there are whole sides and it comes. I think that that reading, that background does come into her later poetry, but it can be easily skipped over. Mm. I mean, extraordinary when you sort of look at the reading list that she, um, you know, I think, you know, one of her her high school tutors was sort of saying to the class, because I think it was not just her, but also the rest of the class, because she was in a very 
high-level um, English group that, you know, she they basically what nowadays English literature degrees read, but they were kind of 14, 15, 16, that kind of age. So yeah. they were precocious, you know, they were reading um, European novels, they were reading psychology and philosophy and the classics and obviously Shakespeare and, you know, Middle English and all the rest of it. It was extraordinarily high level of intellectual stimulation. And of course, her relationship with Aurelia, her mother, who was uh, another fascinating figure in this in this kind of early life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm starting to get the impression, Andrew, that you might be following me because I know your next subject is Marilyn Monroe. Yes, I know. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I, I should do a biography of you next. I can start to gather you. <laughs> you. You won't do that because it won't sell very many copies. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, she's another, another obviously fascinating figure. And as we know, um, some, some individuals um, shout out to biographers to sort of say, you know, come towards me or look at me or... Um, you know, they demand more than one approach. Yeah. I'm a huge admirer of your book here. I've got, uh, you know, your Marilyn Monroe, A Life of the Actress, because it's one of the few books that actually considers her as an actress. Because yes. another thing that people tend to do, obviously, with Marilyn Monroe is focus very much on the sensational private life. And I'm not saying for any minute I'm not going to look at some of those aspects. But I think also, like you, it's important to sort of see her in the totality you know, the reason why we know her fundamentally is because she's a she's a brilliant actress and she knew mm -hmm. exactly what she was doing. Um, and then the all the other stuff, um, you know, the tabloid attention to her private life and the way that she died. Obviously, that, you know, endures the myth, doesn't it? It sort of makes her yes. stay in our kind of our, our intellectual and emotional consciousness to this day. Um, but she's another figure that will never, ever be short of biographers. And there's going to be many, many more to come. I think she's one of the most biographized um, people in the English-speaking world. So I will try to add my two penneth to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I look forward to that for sure. Um, I've been asking you about things which obviously impinge on my interests. But maybe you want to talk about some of your other work. So I think most of my work actually comes from a sense of individual curiosity, um, an idea that I want to read this kind of book. I want to, to know more about this subject and I haven't come across necessarily the book um, out there. So I, I, you know, the idea that if you want to read it, you should write it. I think that's kind of, was that one of Disraeli's quotes or misquotes. Um, so after, after the Patricia Highsmith book, I did a biography of Harold Robbins, who obviously is very, very different to um, Highsmith. Um, but that stemmed from my teenage reading, because when I was a teenager, I became obsessed with blockbuster novels. So in addition to Harold Robbins, I read people like Shirley Conrad, Grace Metellius, Judith Krantz, Jackie Collins, you know, those big fat airport books. Yeah, yeah. And I thought Harold Robbins really was the father of them. And, you know, he was the father of that genre, if you like. And obviously it's been reinvented many times since. Um, so I, I had a great deal of fun with that just because he'd created himself as one character. And in his obituaries, he presented himself 
um, as this particular man who had been born on um, born to an illegitimate mother and he'd been left on the steps of an orphanage in New York. Um, he had lots of other myths about himself, including the fact, I'm putting that in inverted commas, that he'd married a woman called Muriel. Um, her father gave her a parrot for the wedding and she'd been bitten by this parrot and she died in six months. That was just another of his extreme bizarre <laughs> stories. And there was them that I thought, let's try to pick these stories apart. So it was a kind of a biographer's dream, really. The way he presented himself to the world was completely opposite to the reality. So he'd <laughs> invented a, a completely different persona for himself that fooled everybody. So the New Yorker went with the, the myths that he created, as did every single person who wrote his obituary, as did um, Alan Wicker. Remember him, who toured with um, Harold Robbins around New York and just swallowed absolutely everything he said. So I thought it was it was a great kind of biographical project, really, to pick apart the myths from the reality. Um, after that, I did a book about the survivors of the Titanic. And again, it was another of my enduring interests. But of course, we all know this, you know, the subject of the Titanic and how it sank. Um, but not many people really heard looked at and examined the lives of the survivors. So my starting point for that book was what happened to the people who stepped off the rescue ship mm. when it docked in New York. So I followed a number of individual stories to weave um, in and out across the course of the 20th century. So that was a group biography. And um, then came Sylvia Plath which we've talked about. And then after that came a biography of Alexander McQueen, the fashion designer. And I'm no means a fashion um, historian, as you'll, if anybody was watching this um, visually, they would see that by from what I was wearing. Um, but I, I thought it was actually quite useful, the fact that it was outside the fashion industry because it's notoriously closed and cliquey and protected by a number of vested individuals who want to keep, you know, the secrets of the fashion world contained within that world. So I wanted to pick apart this kind of toxic world because I did find it was quite toxic. And he's a very recent subject. He'd only died a few years before I started to research it. He, he was a death by suicide, which made it even more difficult and sensitive. Um, but I gained the trust of his family. I worked very closely with them, particularly his, his eldest sister, Janet, and a number of his close friends and lovers. Um, and I wasn't trying to shy away from anything difficult about his personality because he was a difficult man in many, many respects. But I wanted to get beyond the myth. And again, I think that's one of the fascinating things you will know from being a biographer yourself, that there were myths in in popular culture about these figures. And it's one of the challenges to make them human, make them human beings. In all the ways they're extraordinary, they're also ordinary people. So I interviewed a lot of people for that book um, who gave me sort of an inflinching look at his, his life. And I was able to, you know, draw the links between his life and his work because his fashion was incredibly autobiographical. As one critic said, I think, you know, that he, he sowed anger and pain into his designs. 
Mm. And I wanted, yeah, I wanted that book to reflect that. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can see that. It's such an uh, interesting uh, point about biography, sort of unpacking, thre threading your way through the myths and, and stories that our subjects tell. Often when I'm working on a subject, this has happened with William Faulkner, for example, people will say, did he really say when he was in Hollywood that he was going home to write a script and he actually went all the way back to Oxford, Mississippi? Uh, you know, he'd love to tell that story. Uh, and it isn't quite true. Uh, he, did write, he did write some scripts at home, but it wasn't that abrupt. Uh, and they knew that he was doing it. And you see what I'm doing? I'm depriving the story of all of its romance. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's sometimes people hold that against biographers. Yes, that's true. Um, I mean, there are sort of ways and means around that. I mean, what I did, for instance, with the Harold Robbins book, because the stories were so brilliant and so madcap and fun, I invented them as if they were true. So I could tell them in all the madcap glory yeah and then i could so the reader has a sensation of enjoying yeah bizarreness of this particular narrative story and then that's i a, yeah pick it that's that's a really good good point it reminds me of there's a wonderful uh scene in hollywood with faulkner and um natalie johnson who was a producer and also a script writer about them getting together and drinking and so on it's a, quite a rollicking story uh, and most of it's not true, but I tell the whole thing, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then I explain, well, you know, how did how did this come about? That is the mm -hmm. story, and so on. So the reader does get to enjoy all that. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. um, obviously it's a balance between, you know, we sort of giving the the sort of the reader um, as good a time possible. Because obviously, you know, one way of writing biography and you know, to make it as dull as possible would just be to tell the facts. Yes. And no to read a biography which is just full of facts. You know, there's Wikipedia entries for all these people which just give you a list of achievements, awards, um, certain events of their life. But I want to approach biography almost as if it's as pleasurable as to read as a novel. So I'm not using, um, you know, I would never make anything up at all. So every detail in my book would be true and checked um, with sources. But I'd like to make it as enjoyable as reading a, a work of fiction. Um, in a way, you know, as, as Trim Capote did in In Cold Blood. I mean, we know now that some of those instances and, and so-called facts aren't quite as true as he claimed. Um, but that's another point entirely. Um, but to make it as enjoyable as a sort of a piece of non-narrative um, fiction can be. Now, you mentioned biographical novels, which I, I also review, because I, there's an interesting kind of symbiosis between the novel and biography and biographies and biographical novels. So talk about that a bit. So I think after my experience with Highsmith, um, because it was incredibly formative for me as a writer and as an individual, you know, working on that for at least five years, um, spending so much time in an archive, trailing around the world, as you said, shadowing people. Um, during that time, obviously, I had also read Henry James's Ask the Aspen Papers, which you mentioned. And I became intrigued by this idea of the biographer as, as subject 
for fiction. So that became one of my early works of fiction. It was a book, a novel called The Lying Tongue, which is set in Venice, which is about a reclusive writer, Gordon Crace, um, who's quite elderly, who lives in this decaying palazzo, and an aspiring young biographer, Adam, who comes to work for him, who secretly wants to write his biography. So it's about the tension between somebody who resists being written about and then somebody who wants to intrude and expose the secrets. Um, it's a crime novel, so there is, there's murder and death um, in that, obviously influenced by Highsmith a great deal. Um, and the other novels I've written actually um, are, I've written a series of four novels with Agatha Christie as my sleuth. So they are set between 1926 and 1930. The first one, A Talent for Murder, is about Agatha Christie's disappearance in, in England when she disappeared for 11 days. And it was thought that she'd either been murdered or had gone missing and she was eventually found in Harrogate, which is a very, very famous story. Um, and I wanted to sort of put my biographical hat on, really. So I found all the facts of the case from police reports and newspapers, and I wrote them all out on a series of card indexes. And then I wanted to inject a fictional crime story to explain my imagination, if you like, um, what really happened during those 11 days. So I've come up with sort of a blackmail plot um, where somebody wants to force or persuade Agatha to commit a murder on their behalf. And since then, I've written three other um, novels with, with Agatha as my subject, but each of them is set in a real place at a real time where Agatha visited. So they're very much rooted in biographical reality. Very much fictional because they're crime novels. But I wanted to, to, to root them in that kind of reality so people have a sense of, you know, perhaps this really could have happened. Yes, yeah. You're, you're writing in a, in a tradition. Uh, some years ago, I've forgotten who the author was, but there were a series of novels uh, with uh, Johnson and Boswell being detectives, so to speak. Um, biography, of course, lends itself to that idea. We're snooping, we're detectives, we're investigating, we're doing all those sorts of things. The problem, I shouldn't say it's a problem, but an aspect of biography that's different from the novel is that if we have a first-person narrator in a novel, we want to know, should we trust that first-person narrator? You know, we want to learn things about that first-person narrator usually. That's very difficult in biography, unless unless you can find some kind of hook, you know, unless you actually knew the subject, the subject was a friend, or there was some kind of encounter with the subject. The biographer is kind of the silent narrator in a way. And, and, and in order to, I found some ways in which to get around that, but it's, it's sometimes a, a, an issue with biography, I guess I'd say. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've always been intrigued about how far you can place yourself as a first person in biography. Right. And my instinct is very much to remain in the shadows mm -hmm. uh, until, you know, that there's that, that incident I referred to by placing the dressing gown on in the Highsmith biography. I think that's the only time I've ever stepped into the limelight in a way. And that was really just to make a point about writing the book and biography and because it was quite a spooky 
thing to do. I mean, I'm a great admirer of the late Janet Mulcombe for her books. Um, and obviously, she, you know, she wrote the famous one about Plath. And I don't think, I mean, she's brilliant at, at doing that interweaving of traditional biography with first person detection work. But there's not many people that can do it as well as her. It's very, yeah, it's very difficult because uh, you have to, if you're going to do that, you have to really make yourself interesting. And someone <laughs> reading a biography, they're not interested in, in you or me, they're interested in the subject of the biography. And they'll often forget who wrote the biography in the first place. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think the other one that I really remember reading is the one about um, um, well, the, the, the Ian Hamilton one, where he had that terrible... Yes. Uh, yeah. And that, I think he, that was rewritten so many times um, just because of the, the legal complications around the subject. It's, yeah, In Search of J.D. Salinger, Hamilton's yeah. book. Or the other curious sort of innovative uh, and making a virtue of necessity kind of biography is like the quest for Corvo, where things are so indeterminate that the, the sort of the whole um, raison d'etre of the book is I'm the biographer and how am I going to find out, you know, what is true and what is not true. Uh, yes. so that, that's, a, that's, that's a whole other narrative. Mm. Occasionally, what I've done is uh, I did this early on in my Lillian Helen biography, where I was interviewing, and no one had done this. Her her lawyer, uh, Ephraim London, uh, the lawyer she used to sue Mary McCarthy, uh, and then and Helen died before the suit could could be resolved. Um, but he was telling me things which were kind of surprising, and and all of a sudden I thought. Well, maybe the reader would like to know how the hell did Rollison get that information? Mm. So there, there's a kind of dramatic scene, a dialogue back and forth between, I just identify myself in brackets as Rollison, but I wanted the reader to see the questions that I asked that elicited those responses from him, rather than just presenting a narrative, well, he said this, he said that, and the other thing. Yes, I mean, if people kind of knew the, the sort of, you know, the amount of banal backbone and hard work that goes into yeah. to write one particular paragraph um you know you could pack it with footnotes and side notes um, <laughs> but perhaps they wouldn't be that interesting um yeah but it is it's fascinating and i'm really interested in the way that the form of biography is changing now because it does seem like the traditional birth to death biography is going out of fashion or it's not being commissioned by major publishing houses as yes would you, would you agree with that? I do. And I think I think they're really interested in, you know, a slice of life. Um, you know, Fr Benjamin Franklin, so many biographies. So, uh, you know, let's do Franklin in Paris. You know, yes. and just just do that part. Uh, and Candace Millard is a biographer who's been really good at taking, you know, certain events in the subject's life and Theodore Roosevelt's life, for example, uh, and writing really riveting, you know, narratives. And not not having to worry about birth to death, so to speak. Mm. Um, I remember reading there was one that came out um, over here. I think it's in America too, called um, "The Burning Man" by Francis Wilson. Yes, yes, that just won the Plutarch Award from the Biographers International Organization. Yes, yeah. um, which is a great book, and you know, is structured in a very unconventional way. You know, it uses Dante's Inferno as a as a way of structuring a biography, which is very, very daring. 
Yeah, it's it's an amazing book. It, it caught me in the first paragraph. There, there's just something about the rhythm that she establishes in that book that's that's just uh, inimitable. Yes, exactly. And also that kind of daring thing to, I think, she, you know, to use um, minor characters as, as major and, you know, confining the major ones back to the minor, yeah. you know, swap around so certain people stand and come out of the shadows for the first time. Yeah. She's not, uh, she's not your sister, is she? No, we are friends. <laughs> we are friends, um, but we're not related. <laughs> okay. So what have we missed? What else should we talk about? Anything else? Um, I also write psychological thrillers, which okay. perhaps mention, I don't know. Yeah, uh, sure. So I write under a different name as well. I've got another pseudonym called E.V. Adamson. I knew you were a slippery character. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is, uh, which is a way of sort of writing a different kind of book. Um, sort of contemporary thriller, which is very mass market, I suppose you would say. Mm. Uh, so I've written one called Five Strangers. And the second one comes out in a few weeks time, actually. And that is called Murder Grove. And it's set in an eco-village in Spain. And I lived in an eco-village in Spain for six years. So I wrote um, Harold Robbins and the Titanic when I was living there, actually. Um, so it's interesting to go back and, you know, mine one's own life for experiences and memories um, in a kind of autobiographical way. Okay, Andrew. Now here's one free of charge, a plot suggestion. Oh for a, a novel, a thriller, which can also be about biography. Suppose there are two biographers competing either for the attention of a living subject or dealing with estates or something like that. Uh, and I don't know, maybe a murder's involved somehow. You know, when people say, you know, I would just die or I would just kill for that. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think it's such a brilliant idea. Um, it reminds me a bit of Possession, that A.S. Byers. That's right, yeah. Yes. Um, but I think it is very, very ripe for um, exploitation because, as we know, people can get very, very possessive when it comes to their subjects. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> I've met a few of those biographers. <laughs> can, yeah, it can get very, very messy. Um, yeah. I mean, one of my friends, one of my friends told me this story um, I won't mention who they are, but, you know, they were working in the British Library. They went to get a coffee, left their notes on their desk, and they came back to find one of the rival biographers rifling through their notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting at, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I was doing my uh, second biography, uh, uh, this was of Lillian Hellman, and I, I wrote to William Abrams, who was also her editor at Little Brown, and he became the authorized biographer. And I forget what, I don't even remember what, why I contacted him, uh, but I did. And he wrote back, and I'll never forget, I put this actually in my acknowledgments. He wrote back and he said, I am the one and only authorized biographer. And I thought, <laughs> that's pretty funny. You yes. Mean, several of us going around impersonating the authorized <laughs> biographer. Exactly. And also, as we know, which is also worth talking about, is, you know, some of the constraints 
when you are authorized, oh, you know, the yeah. estate yeah. means that that means, you know, the estate reads the manuscript, has a, often has a way of vetoing and censoring the manuscript. So I think the best position, um, I'd like to sort of have a cooperation and a closeness with the estate, but not necessarily authorization, which sort of gives you, you know, the, the benefit of having copyright permissions, hopefully, but then the freedom to say exactly what you want. Um, I've never really been censored. Um, I would would not want to be censored by a literary estate. I know some biographers have and still are, and it's it's it goes against the grain for me. So I would rather step away from that estate and break with them to write the book that I think needs to be written. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I I I've certainly gotten excellent cooperation from the subjects of some of my family, uh, my subjects from their families, uh, and in other cases, enormous hostility. Yes. <laughs> so so it, it's it's worked both ways. Um, uh, it, it's it's a it's a vexed issue. Um, maybe I'll ask you this. It just occurred to me, I guess, because there's this site, the Authors Guild has a, a website where people ask various questions. Uh, and this has often come up with, uh, this might be interesting to my audience too, um, about releases, getting releases from your interview subjects. I just want to state flat out, I have never drawn up a release. I've never asked anybody's permission uh, uh, in the course of an interview. Have you? No, and I wouldn't assume to. I think that kind of very much comes from the world of TV, doesn't it? Yeah. Where you have to get releases from people to have their image broadcast. Um, but no, the only time that's ever happened to me was at the end of the Highsmith um, process when I was going through the final stages. Because Highsmith's manuscripts and archive um, reside in Switzerland, there is a Swiss privacy law that protects them. Ah. So the literary estate got a bit nervous about all the people I'd interviewed, and they asked me to get release slips from every single one of them, Ooh. which was annoying and frustrating, but I did it, and I sent them to them, and that kind of shut them up. But um, I think it was just one of those bits of Swiss law that was a bit vexing um yet another problem to deal with i mean people just think oh you have to you know when you're writing a biography you just have to go through the material read the books or whatever it is interview some people and then write the book but there's all these extra bits of um annoying admin that sometimes <laughs> you have to do yeah um, just to make it to smooth things over yeah yeah but we do it Yes. And it's fascinating, isn't it? So I um You learn I'm, a lot about the nature of the world. Yes, exactly. And you meet <laughs> so many fascinating people. Um, you know, some of the people I've interviewed are still my friends. Um, and I'm looking up at this image of um one of Highsmith's cat drawings. So during the course of my Highsmith um book, I became very close to two of Highsmith's best friends, Charles Latimer and Kate Kingsley Scatterball. Kate gave me the dressing gown, and in Charles's will, he left me these two Highsmith drawings. So, you know, these kind of people that you interview, you come in contact with, they do stay with you. Oh yeah, that's been my experience as well. Yeah, it, 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 it can be a dark experience, but it can be so gratifying. And certainly 
making new friends that way is, is an extraordinary experience. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm looking forward to, you know, delving into Marilyn's life. Oh, yes, yes. How far along are you? I'm really at the beginning, early stages, um, but I'm already obsessed, which I think is a good sign. Yes, I think so, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. So Excellent. I guess we'll, we'll call a halt here at that point of obsession. Yes, it's always a healthy, well, healthy do dose of obsession is, is necessary to be a good biographer, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. That's great. Thank you so much. Oh, yes. I'm going to be posting this interview. I'll send you a link and you can broadcast it to the world. Brilliant. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.